Lucy Porter, hello. Hello. So people, if they don't uh, automatically recognise your name, will probably recognise your voice. You've done quite a lot of telly stuff. You've done um, a lot of the comedy panel stuff, Have I Got News For You, yeah. and Never Mind The Buzzcocks. And, and the week. Mock the week. We had Andy Parsons on here last oh, week. Oh, he's a lovely man, isn't he? He is a lovely man. He was saying it takes like three hours to record it. It's epic, yeah. Well, because it's just a load of men shouting in a room and you try and shut them up and they won't. <laughs> so it really is. It's amazing. And some of the stuff, like when you're at the recording, because, I mean, Frankie Boyle is amazing on air, but the stuff that he says in the recording that you just think I wouldn't say that even in private, even in a locked room to myself. I wouldn't even think it in my head in case somebody somehow knew that I was thinking that dark, evil, horrible thought. But he says it in front of a room full of people and it's astonishing. I mean, the recordings for that show are so worth going to because the stuff you don't see. I mean, they, I know they put out uh, the things they couldn't show you on television, but they should put out... I mean, yeah, there's no medium in which you could put out <laughs> the things you couldn't even be shown. They're even worse than the things that we couldn't show you. They're just, yeah, so, but it's really good fun. I'm briefly interrupting to let you know that I'm Marsha from YesYesMarsha.com and this is from a series of interviews that I did from 2009 to 2011 called Marsha Meets, which were long-form interviews with stand-up comedians that eventually inspired the book off the mic, the world's best stand-up comedians get serious about comedy. That book's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. Back to the interview. And also, you were saying it's like pretty competitive. I mean, you were saying lots of men shouting. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. When they're doing the bit on the step, just... oh, it's nuts! It's like because I wore heels, and because I mean, I think they don't actually have that many women on the. You know, they're trying to have more and all that. But um, but yeah, and they were saying, oh, you're going to be a bit stuck in high heels, and I was like, why? And it was because they like run <laughs> to that microphone, and you're at such a disadvantage. I was teetering along, but then I mean, I hardly ever say anything anyway. I just sit there and giggle. Well, I was going to say just you know <laughs> traditionally. As women, we're a bit more likely to go. Oh no, no, after you. After yeah, you. yeah, yeah. There's show. no room for that on yeah. uh, on what the week. No, it's so, quite funny. But it's, it's kind of one of those things. I did it the first time, and it was just. I, I mean, I honestly felt shell shocked after that to have a sit down with a sweet hot tea, kind of going, "What?" But they all just shouted, and I couldn't say anything. And then, then, and, and, and then um, the next time I did it, I was a bit more like, "All right, fine. I know what I'm getting into." It's, yeah, that's uh, it. But that's kind of like what panel games are like, really. But that's you know, it's quite. It's, it's a blokish world stand up. So you know, you've either got to compete or retire and talking of blokish world things that you've done on telly you went on the gadget show on dave recently batteries not included yes i did turns out you know your gadgets pretty well Well, you know i i think over the years well i've also done like fast driving shows and things like that and i'm probably the least macho (laughs) woman you could hope to meet but you know i'm obviously in touch with my masculine side which is good definitely so you've also you've written for a lot of stuff that was kind of your path into stand-up you were writing yeah merton show well, I was a researcher on the Mrs. Merch. I was um, booking the guests for it, which was, uh, yeah, I was responsible for, uh, you know, Michael Winner being exposed to <laughs> the nation's gaze. And, uh, Has that come back to haunt you? Do you know what? I saw him. I saw Michael Winner uh, last week and it was lovely and he remembered me and he was really sweet. And, you know, when you just go, oh, that, oh, I wanted you to be a bit of a knob, but, you, you know, he was actually really nice. <laughs> That's good that that hasn't haunted you, though. <laughs> so you then did writing after that. Sorry, so you were a researcher on Mrs. Merton, but you've done a lot of writing for radio. Well, yeah, well, that stuff, kind of got me into writing because I just saw that and thought that's the kind of thing I want to do I want to work in comedy and um, yeah so then I sort of started writing 
working, I was working at Granada's Television in Manchester and I kind of got jobs writing on quiz shows and stuff and we'd be doing these ridiculous kind of, like, you know, with quiz shows, you kind of record five a day and they were sort of for daytime telly. And so it was like, I'd, I'd have to do things like write, you know, the interviews that the host does with the contestants, which always the most banal nonsense. And so I'd have to kind of write those things like, and I believe you've got a funny story about the time that you met Les Dennis. And then I'd have to try and write some jokes for the host about that. So that was my kind of apprenticeship. Did the stand-up stuff come out of that in terms of, like, was it a bit frustrating that you think, oh, man, you could have said that in a bad way? Yeah, well, I kind of wanted to do it myself after a while because I just thought, well, also because just the hours are much better because I really like, I mean, I always wanted to be an indie musician. I always wanted to be a bass player in an indie band and because I fancied the lifestyle, I fancied sort of being out late, up late, and, you know, I've managed to live that dream without having any musical talent. That's brilliant. <laughs> so my friends are all really nauseated. It's like, because I know it really pushes their buttons when I kind of say, oh, God, oh, I had a really hard day. I had to get up at eight o'clock this morning. <laughs> and they're all like, we do that every day of our lives. But, uh, yeah, I still can't get my head around that because I just think I... Well, I used to have a proper job, like when I used to work in telly and stuff, and I used to work before that on building sites and stuff. So, I mean, I, I know what it's like, and it's just, it scares me now. I don't know if I can go back to it. What would you do if you went back? Uh, do you know what? I don't know. I don't know. I've been thinking about this. I'd really quite like to be a florist because I've never done it before, but I just think um, I really like flowers. And uh, and I sort of think that if you work in florist, people are in a good mood because I think because I've worked in shops before and it's awful. I worked in a shoe shop and I wanted to kill myself. And um, and, I've, and I used to work in my dad. My dad used to uh, work in a chemist shop and I used to work there as well. And... Um, yeah, and I kind of think the the only sort of shop I could work in would be a florist because I think people would generally be... In, oh, then I suppose you'd have to do funerals, wouldn't you? But then maybe that's good because you just have the extremes. So they'd either be really happy or really sad. Yeah, and then you could be nice and comforting to the really sad ones and then you'd be elated with the with the happy ones, yeah. And I mean, there might even be a bit of, you know, I really like her, I'm thinking of sending her some flowers. You could kind of bring in some advice. Yeah, yeah, there. yeah, yeah, d- definitely. I've cheated on her. What kind of flowers say I'm sorry? You know, that was sort of thing. I'm going to come back to the advice thing because I want to ask you something else. But, uh, oh, but okay. That, okay that's... <laughs> It'll clear up on its own, but okay. if it doesn't, take antibiotics. <laughs> Thanks, I was <laughs> um, But another thing you've done is acting. You were in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest with Christian Slater. I was, yeah. And that was kind of one of the first things of big American film stars coming over here and being in... Yeah, well, because it started at the Edinburgh Festival and we did a run of it. Um, over there and it was yeah because it was a load of comics and uh, then Christian Slater and Francis Barber who were you know the the proper actors who showed us all what to do but um, yeah it was such a laugh and it was so brilliant but yeah it was kind of before people were sick of American stars and it was it was just it's incredible it was full every single night and Christian Slater was just such a laugh and it was it was like being at university or something where we were all just sort of hanging out and going out every night and having a drink it was brilliant and was there weird audiences? Did you get any people who'd obviously come, you know, to see Christian Slater? We love understand? you, Christian! Yeah. I mean, at the beginning, it's like it's a play about mental illness and there's just people kind of... <laughs> During the whooping. Yeah, yeah, no. yeah. Yeah, it was... The, I mean, everyone who sort of had worked in the West End for a long time said it was completely atypical that, you know, there were people joining in and heckling and, I mean, it was, it was nuts. It was a really good experience because the audience went... You know, you sort of think, oh, theatre audiences would be quite sort of proper and stuffy and oh, blah, 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 blah. But this lot that we had, they were mental. It was brilliant. Any more acting plans? I'd, well, I'd do bits and bobs. But it's, it's really difficult when your first acting job has been in a sellout run in the West End with Christian Slater. You sort of think, I wish I hadn't peaked so soon, really. It's like, you know, a band having a really successful first album. You go, may as well just give up and do something else, really. 
I suppose you set the bar quite high Indeed. for yourself as well. Yeah. So bit parts wouldn't be as... Well, I mean, I only had a tiny part in it, though. That's the thing, is that it was brilliant, because I was get. I mean, I only had about three lines. So, uh, you know, it was just a bit of a free pass to fun for me, so I didn't really have too much pressure, and I had all the fun. So stand-up is your main, yeah. main thing that you do. That's you my love. That's my passion. You've won a lot of awards doing stand-up. You've also done stand-up around the world. You've been to some crazy places. It's been great, actually. The last few years, I've got to do some really good travelling. And, uh, yeah, I mean, some of it's been brilliant, some of it's been not quite so. <laughs> Why not quite so? Well, I don't know. There's places I've been to. I would hate... To, well, I'm going to say Dubai. Which is really, I would actually quite like to be invited back there because the weather's nice, but uh, but that's a bit of a weird place. Why, why it's just it? full of expat Brits, and um, they're all insane, and they all just drink really heavily and boast about how they don't pay tax. And uh, they're just a kind of really weird audience to play to. But there's been some lovely ones as well. Like I was in South Africa for a month, which was quite nice. And, and how did your stuff go down? That was all right. Yeah, that was fine. It took me a little while, though, because, you know, I think any time you go somewhere new, and South Africa is so, you know, it's so recently integrated that it's still a bit weird because all the South African comics just talk about race all the time. It's all about, hey, you know, this Zulu guy did this, and then this coloured guy did this. And you sort of go, wow, it's so... That's the obviously it's a preoccupation because it's so it's so new, but but yeah, no, it was fine in the end. And I mean, America's always the the best one to play. That's you played in Caesar's Palace. I've done Caesar's. That's probably see again. You just think, do you know what? I may as well. You know, the career in floristry should happen sooner rather than later, really, because because <laughs> uh, yeah, that was that was awesome. Although you see, I say that and I should qualify that with it wasn't like the main auditorium. It wasn't like where Celine Dion holds forth to thousands of people. It was a little conference room <laughs> in Caesar's <laughs> Palace. It was like where they have the annual hardware conference uh, get together and meet and greet. But still, and how was the audience there? They were great, actually. Yeah. Well, I think Americans. There's sort of quite a lot of Anglophile Americans now. So, well, I'd say now, I don't know, there probably always have been. Because like, the mistake I made when I first went to America was I tried to tailor my set to the Americans and hey, go, hey, you guys, hey, you guys, you know when you do this and you do that. And it, actually what they really want is for you to go over and baffle them with Britishness because they, they all come up to you and go, I love Monty Python, you know, <laughs> and they don't understand a word of it, but they love it and that's kind of what they want. So you've got a new stand-up show that you yes. are on tour with at the moment. I am. And it's called Bare Necessity. It is. Can you tell me about it? <laughs> it's called The Bare Necessities. Do you know what, though? Largely it was called The Bare Necessities because I wanted to play the song The Bare Necessities from Jungle Book at the end. Because I always think one of the most important things about doing stand-up is what song you play at the end. Because even if you know people haven't liked you that much, I think if you play a good song at the end, they will leave in a good mood. <laughs> Do you know, I've been talking about this a lot with people um, because I work with a lot of new artists and actually, I'm going to push my glass up my nose now, there is a psychological <laughs> phenomenon called the primacy recency effect. Yes. And it means that people, whatever they think at the end... Yeah. Extrapolate across the whole show. Indeed, That's a indeed. Thing. I never thought. I know. Well, you see, this is it, what's nice is I'd sort of learnt that on the job, and then I also read about it. And of course, that makes perfect sense. That I've always known this. That you, you know, the last five minutes of a gig are golden, and there's nothing worse than. You know, you've had the crowd all the way through and then you lose them right at the end because that's what they'll remember on the way home. And so the show is about kind of... Well, do you want to explain? Well, it was sort of about global economics, but not as dull as that sounds. So uh, it's sort of about that and imaginary dogs and building dens and uh, and sexual intercourse and drinking. Right. So <laughs> it's kind of a mishmash of all sorts of things. OK, but the essential point is kind of stripping things back... To the bare necessities, yeah. yeah. So it's all about what's important in life and, uh, you know, like 
cups of tea and biscuits. Because I was going to ask you about if you strip things, like if, if you've ever done that. You know those yeah. vegans, people who live out of bins? Well, what, that's what we've been doing. The flat that I've moved to, we've been entirely furnishing it from FreeCycle. Because we gave away a load of stuff. Because you know when you move flat and you just stuff doesn't fit or whatever. So we gave away a load of stuff. And now we're only getting stuff off FreeCycle. The problem is we're not getting anything that we need. But every day we get, like we got a load of Beatles memorabilia the other day. Because there was this woman around the corner. And she just put up, I've got a load of old Beatles stuff. And it's Surely just brilliant. I think she'd fill it out all the stuff that was actually worth anything this is all just it's kind of old magazine interviews and stuff but it's brilliant it just means that you know by the toilet we've got six stacks of old tv and radio times and just brilliant things it's kind of it is cool though i think that it definitely is the way forward not spending money on stuff because it is you know you just buy tat anyway so i kind of think well let's just get free tat free cycle's kind of a scary place though sometimes when you're trying to give something away and mm. you get you've got to decide who it goes to yes. you get these sob stories i know it's like the yeah the deserving and the undeserving poor isn't it yeah because my boyfriend is incredibly um, judgmental about like he always says oh no they haven't asked for it with a with a little story because I think that's the key on free circuit it's like beggars now you never get a beggar just saying can I have 10p you always get that kind of oh I've locked myself out and I'm, my landlord lives in Kingston and I need to get a train you know and you just go just ask me for the money I really don't need the story uh, but yeah, and it's like free cycle. You just think, well, creative writers are rewarded on free cycle. But I think that's good. I kind of I feel like if someone comes up to me begging, and they've got a really long story, even though I know it's a lie. I think, well, at least you've made the effort. Yeah, there's value for money there, <laughs> isn't there? You sort of yeah, get a little bit of entertainment. So the show you did before this was called Lucy Porter's Love It. It was, and it was kind of about the madness that descends when you fall in love with mm. someone. The and mental illness that is yeah. love. Yeah, I mean, I'm properly convinced that it is a mental illness. And I heard that as a result, you inadvertently turned yourself into an agony aunt. Yeah, I mean, amazing. Everyone who came to see the show. I mean, often it was after the show. So it was called Lucy Porter's Loving and people would come and see it. And then after the show, I would be taken to one side by a sort of normally a gentleman in his late teens, early 20s, who would kind of say, look, I've got this girl and I really like her and I don't know what to do and, you know, you seem to be quite confident and, you know, can you tell me what to do? And it was lovely because I was getting to talk to lots of young men um, quite intimately and I'd normally say, don't forget about her, love. What you what you want is an older lady, that's that's what you need. Um, but sometimes actually in the show as well, there was this one woman who started slagging off the size of her boyfriend's penis, which is everything I don't want to happen in a show because female comics get enough of a hard time anyway of people thinking we're all man-haters. So I was kind of trying to shut her up. But yeah, it was weird. I, and I, like, why watching the show you would think that I would be in any position to give advice at all because I'm clearly the most neurotic bundle of nonsense ever but did you ever get any feedback on whether your advice had worked or not do you know what I got a really a really weird one recently which was this girl who and I'd inadvertently given her advice this wasn't deliberate but um she'd come to the show with her boyfriend who was a dick and he kept heckling like it wasn't just me who was on there was other people on and he'd been heckling all through the night and I'm not normally aggressive and I wouldn't like you know other comics will sort of slam people and I just had had enough because he'd been so rude all night so I just laid into him and she was with him she was the girlfriend and I was just begging her just going just leave him just he won't learn unless you leave him because he's such a knob I mean he was racist vile I mean he was just awful and um, I got an email from her saying thank you so much I left him that gave me the impetus to leave him and uh you know, I'm, I've never been happier since wow. uh, she'd met someone else. So, That's amazing. So, yeah, that kind of felt quite good, although I was slightly worried because you just think, well, that could have gone either way, couldn't it? He could have, you know, gone nuts yeah. and punched her or something. But thank God it turned out right. Well, that kind of pulls in a few things nicely together. So that, your mm -hmm. plan B career for things, maybe yeah. giving advice to people. 
As a possible plan B career, I've got Dear Deirdre. Dear Deirdre. From today's son. <laughs> okay, Can yeah. Can I read you out three of the problems? I like Deirdre. See what your advice Let's is. Let's see if it tallies with Deirdre's, okay. yes. I suspect it might not, but... Number one. Yeah. I have just discovered that I'm pregnant with my lover's baby. My marriage has been passionless for years. I met a guy in a supermarket who pleased me in a way my husband can't anymore. <laughs> One weekend, my lover suggested we have a threesome with my husband. Uh, I was doubtfully kept on asking, so eventually I popped the question. My husband agreed, and the next night it happened. Since then, I've fallen pregnant. What should I do? Uh, just don't go to the supermarket anymore. Clearly, this is <laughs> this is the problem, is that you're, you know, you're eyeing up the carrots in Asda and getting a little bit turned on. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't know, confine yourself to quarters and stop being such a such a tart Deirdre was less tough love oh, but that's okay. alright okay. she just said is the lover up to parenting if so be considerate with your husband but consider going with the lover or just all three of you live together in a menage a trois if it was a French film then that's what would happen <laughs> um, ok number two a bloke dropped my girlfriend home at 1am she says he was giving her mortgage advice then, <laughs> oh, she's brilliant. I they, love her. They now text each other all the time, one night for six hours straight. Whenever I ask her about it, she gets angry, so she's just discussing her mortgage with him. <laughs> I think if she's thinking of selling the house, she should speak to me. What should I do? That is just too... Bri- I mean, do I really need to say anything about that? <laughs> you just think... I mean, That man has put pen to paper and yet cannot see what is going on under his nose. You see, this is why, as I say, love is a mental illness. Imagine the, the delusion that we all fall into, because I've done it myself as well, of going, well, I'm sure, you know, he was just helping that girl look for a puppy. <laughs> Definitely, yeah, you know, he just that they thought that the puppy had gone into the behind the trees and they were taking their clothes off so they wouldn't scare the puppy. I, you know, it is nuts. Deirdre says dumb Deirdre basically says, spell out that this is a problem. Well, yeah. <laughs> and talk to her. Yeah. And the final one, it's more of a sort of a, might need some more practical advice. When my girlfriend gets close to orgasm, she gets a cramp in her leg. <laughs> Our sex life is adventurous and hugely enjoyable, but when I give her downstairs love, yeah. uh, just before she orgasms, she cries out with an unbearable pain in her calf muscles. Any ideas on how to prevent it? You're leaning on her knee. <laughs> That's what it is. She's too polite to say, but you're leaning on her knee. That is obvious. Or you're too fat, so you're pushing her legs too wide apart. So lose some weight or just stop doing it. Deirdre suggests that she might be dehydrated. So so get her to drink more water and to stretch her calf. (laughs) That is brilliant, the idea of doing a (laughs) warm-up. Sorry, darling, I've just got to do a few lunges. I'll be with you in a second. So, Lucy Porter, you're on tour right now. Right now. And that includes a date at London's Bloomsbury Theatre on the 25th of April. Thank God you know when it is. I always come (laughs) along to do interviews and uh, they say, don't forget to plug the show because I never remember to plug the show and I never have the dates of anything. So people say, so when can we see you? And I go, don't know, sometimes. (laughs) What they all then just have to do is just say, go and look at my website, which is... Yeah, I barely update it, but it's uh, (laughs) lucyporter.co.uk because I had .com and then let it lapse like an idiot. So that's now advertising. All right, Lucy Porter, thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening. If you like that, you'll probably love the book that I put together with Deborah Francis White called Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. So asking them things like, what's your writing process? How do you find your voice? What do you think about touring? How do you deal with hecklers? We interviewed 42 stand-ups, including Eddie Izzard, Sarah Millican, Phil Jupiter, Stuart Lee, Mark Maron. It's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. If you want to find out more, go to Yes Yes marsha.com forward slash off the mic.